Boom! Hey everybody, welcome to the next podcast of Great Health Does Not Have to Be a Mission Impossible. In today's podcast, we have to talk about the physiology of your nervous system. Now, a nerve cell is called a neuron, and at the end of a neuron, there is something called dendrites. And dendrites are these finger-like projections that connect closely to another nerve cell. Now, if you're at the end of a nerve, it's called postsynaptic and if you're at the beginning of a nerve, let's say the next nerve down line, it's called postsynaptic synaptic. And in between are these things called neurotransmitters. Now, the nerves actually don't touch each other, but they send a signal across the what's called synapse to communicate from one to the other. So that's really how they work. Now, the, the process, again, called synapse came from the word in um, Greek word meaning synaptin. And sin means together, and hapten means to class. So synapse really means to class together the neurons. And so in order for a synapse to occur, something must stimulate. And this happens by chemical and electrical impulses as one goes from one nerve to the other. Now, in young children, they're estimated to have 10 quadrillion synapses going on at any time. But as an adult, you only get between 5 uh, and 1 uh, quadrillion synapses at once. It, it starts to go down, but the difference is how many cells you have. So as, a, as an infant and a toddler, they have many more cells in their brain than an adult does, but adults, as we lose our brain cells, start to have better synapses in what's called um, plasticity. Now, several things can go wrong during a synapse, and if there's an unhealthy nervous system, there could be insufficient neurotransmitters. What if there's a problem with presynaptic or postsynaptic receptors? Now, a lot of anti-anxiety and antidepressive medications go into those pre- and postsynaptic areas, and then they essentially tell the body, we got, the, we got you, don't worry about making it. So that can cause a problem. Or the neurotransmitter doesn't break down and get reabsorbed so that it can't be used for future. That's a lot what these medications do. So if you've ever been on an anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication, most people notice over time you get more of that medication or you get a second medication to help the reabsorption and put back. Now, they don't tell you exactly how the process works, but that's really how it works. What if you have too much inflammation? What if you have hormone imbalances? What if you have blood sugar handling issues? These all sabotage neurotransmitter function. This is how somebody who has a hormone imbalance can get anxiety and depression, can have mood swings. This is how somebody who has inflammation can have anxiety and depression, can have mood swings. This is how somebody who has poor blood sugar handling can have anxiety and depression and can have mood swings. Can you get my point as we're going on here? Now, all these things, as anxiety comes along, it can turn into something called depression. What if you had autism? What if you had a, a traumatic brain injury? What if you had a stroke? What if you had a concussion? Uh, all of these things add to the risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so when we take a look at somebody who comes in the office and we're doing an exam, we're looking at your oxygen content. Well, we can do that with an O2 monitor like on your finger. We look at your glucose monitor or your glucose testing. Now, one of the things we can do is blood test, but a lot of the symptoms do tell us what's going on with your blood sugar and then what kind of stimulation you have. So if you're a couch potato and you're just playing video games, you're not, while well, you're getting a certain type of stimulation, your whole, the rest of the body's not doing anything. But let's say you read a lot. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, whether it's, it's some yard work or some inside house, you're, you're folding laundry or doing things like that. There's some stimulation there and you usually don't sit to do laundry, you're usually standing, but where is the exercise there? And if you're just doing that, but you're not reading, if you're just doing that, but you're not um, learning something, you're not stimulating your brain. So the stimulation becomes a big deal of it. Now, oxygen can come from several things. It can be 
uh, blood sugar disorders. Uh, it could be low ins or low uh, blood sugar called hypoglycemia, or it could have insulin resistance or diabetes. All of these can deprive your brain from getting the oxygen that it requires. So as I get into this, I'm going to break down right now. Let's talk about blood sugar and its its disruption on the brain. So there's something called a brain axis, and glucose, when it's too high or too low, is out of regulation. It's called dysregulation, and because glucose is called glycemia, it's dysglycemia. So those are the technical terms if you ever get bored and you want to start learning, reading um, medical journals. So you have to wake up in the morning, and that part of the brain, so if somebody has trouble waking up, they can have a what's called, this part of the brain is called the pineal hypothalamic medial temporal lobe. And so when they don't have blood sugar, blood supply stimulation that goes there, then they have trouble waking up in the morning. Well, what if they have trouble sleeping? Well, it could be the medial temporal lobe. So you get abnormal cortisol, it's too high or too low. You could have melatonin circadian rhythms that are off, meaning that if the cortisol is too high, you're not going to make melatonin, which melatonin starts in the gut, which then goes to the brain and tells, okay, what's going on? But cortisol is something that comes from your adrenals. But it has to be told to do that by the brain. So melatonin tells the brain what's up. Brain goes down to the adrenals and says, what's up? You make cortisol or lack of cortisol. And then there's this, what's called a, a really a melatonin cortisol circadian rhythm that gets out. Well, what part of the brain does it go to? The medial temporal lobe. Now, even before when you don't wake up and now you can't fall asleep, one of the common denominators here is the medial temporal lobe. And that is one of the biggest things that shows up in Alzheimer's. Well, what about if somebody starts to have really high blood pressure? What if somebody can't uh, digest, whether they have constant diarrhea or constant constipation or both? Uh, what if somebody can't swallow? Uh, these are things that are called dysautonomia, and you get what's called an increased sympathetic response. Now, sympathetic response is to get blood to your heart and your lungs and your muscles and get going. It does not care about digestion. It does not care about hormones. It does not care about your immune system because you are in a sympathetic response and you are in a fight or flight. You are running from a bear. Now, this goes to your brain stem. It's called the autonomic nervous centers of the brain, and that is in your lower brain called the brain stem. Now, you can also have an injury such as a concussion or a stroke or a post-traumatic stress syndrome, which goes into that, or uh, degeneration because you have a blood sugar issue, high or low, because you have an oxygen issue, or because you have lack of stimulation. Now, this is what happens when so many people finally retire. They're like, screw it. I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm going watch to watch TV. Well, what's their diet look like? TV dinners. Uh, I'm aging myself when I say that. Microwave dinners. Um, you're not stimulating, you're not getting out and moving. These are all things that start to break down. So what happens is you get degeneration. Now you could have had an injury before that any one of these has now an increased demand for sugar to heal, but you're not getting it in there. So what do we do for blood sugar? Like crossword puzzles or Sudoku, they're good brain food. But if somebody does them, and they're still eating junk food. So let's say they're eating um, a donut or ice cream. The, there's too much sugar in there. And it overstimulates and then it ultimately deprives the brain of energy. So we have to make sure that's okay. But what if you just don't eat? You're not hungry ever. Well, one third of the, the body's blood sugar as you eat supplies the brain. So if it's too low or you've gone too long without eating and then you, don't, you go eat or you, let's say you're a kid and you skip breakfast and you go because kids are different the brains what what a what a child requires for nutrition and when they need require it is different from an adult but a lot of kids skip breakfast 
and then they have to go do a, a quiz, whether it's math or science or uh, even writing an essay in English. And they haven't eaten for a long time. Well, guess what's going to happen? Their brain isn't sufficiently um, fueled, so they don't do as well in school. Well, that can also happen to adults where they're not sufficiently fueled, and then they start to have issues or production that comes along when their work uh, world. Now, when I, we talk about diabetes, because we just briefly talked about hypoglycemia, but there, diabetes is a big deal. And by the way, at post-pandemic, Type 2 diabetes, which is supposed to be a, a, a disease of the elderly, really, and by elderly over 65, which has become such a prevalent issue in our teenage kids, went up 70% when people were forced to stay home. So I will call that government oversight because what happened to our kids and the health of their kids and the risk factors that comes with type 2 diabetes, whether it's cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, stroke, cancers, all the leading causes of death go up massively when you have type 2 diabetes. So we really want to get your blood sugar under control. Now, as the autoimmune diabetic scale goes, you have several different types. One is considered latent autoimmune diabetes of adult. It, it takes a while to get there. They don't even really know they have it. They don't really have symptoms. But you could also have type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes, which is somebody who they know they have it. They take insulin all the time. Or you could have what's called exogenous insulin autoimmune syndrome, where the body's making insulin from somewhere else other than the pancreas. That's, that's a problem. And then you get type B insulin resistance uh, as it comes along. So there's different levels of autoimmune which means you're attacking your body when it comes to high blood sugar. Now, when it comes to the brain-blood sugar connection, or what we call brain-glucose connection, <clears throat> this is the different parts of the brain that, that enjoy food, <laughs> so glucose. So in your hypothalamus, which is at the back of your brain, the hypothalamus is what regulates. I'm hot, I'm cold. If you've ever been shivering, if you've ever been sweating, hypothalamus deals with that. But it also tells you when you're hungry. Um, so in the hypothalamus, the outside or the lateral side says you're hungry. And then inside, um, which is called the paraventricular nucleus, it activates your cortisol-releasing hormone. And then on the top side of it, called the dorsal medial nucleus, it activates your synaptic responses, meaning it's the neurotransmitter releases. Now, different part of your brain, called the medial temporal lobe, which we just talked about, um, your hippocampus regulates cortisol rhythm when it's high, when it's low. And then the very middle of your brain, called the midbrain, again, it activates sympathetic responses. So, fight or flight. So, when you have this, in the big, the big nutshell, the brain glucose connection, cortisol gets released. Uh, when cortisol is increased, you get what's called gluconeogenesis, meaning that the liver now breaks down its own fat and converts the fat into sugar. And then vice versa, um, you can take, not, not from cortisol, but you, the liver will take excess glucose, turn it into fat, and then the body will store it as fat. So that's where people eating too much sugar can gain weight. But even though they're eating sugar, why do they get fat? The body turns it into fat. So increased cortisol Again, we talked about gluconeogenesis and glucogenolysis, meaning it takes the glucose and will break it apart so you get more glucose, more blood sugar in the blood cells. So cortisol will do that. So this is how people who get on prednisone or other steroids, because of the way it is, because it's a steroid, by the way, glucose is a, I'm sorry, cortisol is a steroid. 
This is how you can get increased blood sugar release. This is how people with long-term steroid use end up with diabetes is because it releases glucose along the way. So you have more sugar glucose circulating in the bloodstream. Now, when you get more glucose circulating in the bloodstream, it activates your fight or flight response called the sympathetic chain. So when you have more glucose, so this is the thing in our, in our world, in our society, when you, you know, when you have cookies and pastries and ice cream and all these things uh, and alcohol, you get more blood sugar in your bloodstream. Then it responds to a sympathetic chain activation, meaning that now you are in a fight or flight. So you release this thing called adrenaline, which is epinephrine or norepinephrine, which in turn also creates glycogenolysis, meaning more blood sugar in the bloodstream. It's a vicious cycle. So I'm sorry if you heard that and you heard it right. It does suck. So we have to manage your diet. So as your blood sugar comes along, again, most people start with anxiety, then it turns to depression. But when you have unhealthy neurons, whether it's inflammation or lack of oxygen or too much blood sugar, you get an unhealthy neuron connection. Just like a muscle, if I if I overwork my muscle or I never work my muscle, I'm going to have an unhealthy muscle response. So neurons require food too. And what they start to do when they're unhealthy is they're like, I don't, I, I can't do it on my own. Can you hook a brother up? So a nerve will tell, ask another nerve to help it, and that's called collateral neural, neuronal recruitment. It recruits another nerve. Well, when you bring in another friend to help you, now you have increased fuel demands, right? So let's say you have an engine that runs on four cylinders, but it's a six cylinder, but when it goes, I gotta hit the gas, or somebody coming across the intersection, we gotta get going. It requires more gas. So when you recruit cylinders five and six, it requires more glucose demands. And when you get more demands, you get more low blood sugar, more hypoglycemia. Now, in your cerebral cortex, which is um, how you move, how you smell, how you think, um, it's you get decreased cerebral cortex function, which means decreased hypothalamus. Now you have trouble regulating your temperature. That's how people, uh, when they come in with cold hands and feet all the time, it's not always thyroid. It can be blood sugar because you've been what's called dysglycemics for so damn long that the hypothalamus no longer, it, it tried to recruit, it didn't recruit, the food isn't there, it, it's it's pooping out, so it's no longer regulating your temperature, somebody who is really, really hot. So even in cases, again, remember, hormone imbalance can be from blood sugar imbalance, and then when you get into hot flashes, it's not necessarily the burn off of estrogen. It, it can be, but it can still be blood sugar or the hypothalamus just started to break down because there was a hormone imbalance because there was an oxygen or blood sugar imbalance to begin with. So that's where some women have awful hot flashes. Some women have hot flashes and considered normal and some have and like one and that's it. They're, that can completely be the difference in their, how they go through that experience. So in that impaired brain glucose connection, you also get a decreased pituitary. Well, pituitary is kind of important. And this is where we start to get into thyroid disorders and digestive disorders. But pituitary is vitally important for that. Or uh, it also tells for women who, you know, my cycle was 15 days or my cycle was consistently 45 days or it, it comes whenever. That comes from the pituitary. That's your follicle-stimulating hormone. Uh, and men, your sex hormone binding globulin, or what allows you to release testosterone. Because men have the same thing, too. This isn't just women. This is where men can have low sperm production. But if you look at the entire world right now and the food that we have in the world, there are so many people um, who are becoming infertile. The, the birth rates are on a 
tragic decline in the entire world because we have these issues going on and, and food is one of the biggest issues, not to mention two years of massive stress and, and lockdowns and all the other stuff that, that created a stress condition. Now, when you have a decreased hypothalamus and a decreased pituitary, you get what's called insulin resistance and the insulin is no longer allowed to break it into the cell and then eventually you get hypoglycemia susceptibility. Also, when you have a brain glucose connection impairment, you get decreased medial temporal load. This is where your, your long-term memory uh, is coming from. So again, hi decreased hypothalamus, and when you get that, you get decreased cortisol rhythm and insulin resistance and hypoglycemia susceptibility. So these people have trouble falling asleep, and these people have trouble getting up. And then, well, you start to have decreased cerebellum issues because the cerebellum, while it's sensitive to alcohol, which is where most of your Friday night pullovers, we call them DUI checkpoints, they run a cerebellum test really on there to see how your impairment is because cerebellum has a lot to do with balance and it's your brake to be able to, so in the cases of driving a car, you see another car pull in front of you, you must put your foot on the brake. Well, when you are impaired, you can't always do that. Uh, cerebellum is also susceptible to two other things, blood sugar, dyslexemia, too high or too low, and gluten. So when you have these impaired blood sugar issues, you get decreased cerebellar self-inhibition, meaning that it can't stop. So everything gets excited. Everything goes too fast for you, which means it really does shut you down. You get increased midbrain autoimmune activity, meaning you can start to attack the mid midpoint of your brain. This is really where Alzheimer's Parkinson's can start to begin because that is the midbrain area that those typically go to. And then, of course, they have low blood sugar susceptibility. So uh, you can have low blood sugar and it, you don't get enough blood sugar to your brain and you fail every single cerebellum test. But that doesn't mean you have a, a disease or an infection or anything else that goes into the cerebellum. But I, I'm just putting that together. As we see somebody that comes in clinically and they pass the, the top two tests, but they fail their cerebellum test, well, we know we've got an oxygen, blood sugar, uh, blood supply. And if I don't smell alcohol in them, it's probably not alcohol or possibly even gluten. So those are things we have to go decipher and run blood tests for. And then the very middle of the brain, so medial temporal lobe is typically your Alzheimer's, but you can also have basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia indirect pathway is in the midbrain activity or the midbrain autonomic activity. And this is where Parkinson's tends to show up. And you can still get low blood sugar to go along with that. So you have a Parkinson's patient that, that has figured out and they've changed their diet and they're regulating and, and it really does slow down. If they understand what they're doing and the doctor is teaching them how to eat and not just giving a medication, they do so much better. And, and we've seen this clinically again and again and again and again in the office. And then we have somebody that's bought into the medical world. I'm just going to take this medication. Diet doesn't really matter. They have these surges of high blood sugar and then followed by low blood sugar. They're, it doesn't matter how many meds they're on. and They'll be on four or five. They're getting worse. I, we just see it so much. Now we have to talk about stimulation in part of because neurons communicate by electrical charges. So think of them like you know, your little AAA battery. Uh, eventually, it will go out. But how do you recharge it? The idea is that a neuron is rechargeable in a battery. And the basic requirements of this battery is oxygen, blood sugar, and stimulation. So as we started talking about food that helps with glucose, you have to move to get oxygen. We have to make sure you don't have an anemia or the food that you eat. So let's say somebody is a complete vegan. Um, or they're never going to touch anything that has to do with animal protein. And they're never going to get any iron in because they can't juice enough spinach to possibly get there, they're going to have an oxygen deprivation issue. Well, what's that going to do to their nervous system? This is why so many people that go 
vegan and vegetarian have so much anxiety. Um, I'm not going to point out a certain group, but it, it becomes anger too. Why? Because your blood sugar is too high or too low. It's called hangry. You're hangry all the time. And if we could start to educate this in the school system, I think we'd really make a big difference in our in our society. So if somebody doesn't stimulate themselves, they also don't get it. So let's take a, a non-traditional college student. Let's say, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years old. And maybe they had got a degree in IT. Well, what does IT do? You have to look at all the computers and you're sitting down and you're not really moving that much. And then let's take the next person who, you know, they maybe started school, but maybe they joined a fraternity or sorority and they found that alcohol was their friend and then they didn't make very good grades and they got asked to leave. All right, so now they went into construction or something of that nature, or maybe they were um, old school mail person that they had to walk down the street and then put the mail into the mailbox, not just driving around and doing it. So they have stimulation. Which one is going to do better as a um, non-traditional student? It's going to be the one that's moving around. The, even though the IT student has, or the IT person has been on computers and they probably read a lot of code, that stimulation didn't con connect with movement. And so when they start to have to use their brain in a hard way, they don't have enough oxygen or glucose to get there because the other person was walking around making them very efficient on that. So they're probably going to learn a lot better if you have movement. So um, that's another thing to consider when somebody comes in to whether it's the office or they're having trouble um, with this or that, with learning or they're like, I, I tried to try to learn a new, a new language and that sucked. I, I, I tried to learn piano and I, I made it like two weeks and it was so awful. It was there. Those, those are what we call diagnostics. So let's talk about symptoms of blood sugar imbalances. So this is low blood sugar. If you ate in like 20, 30 minutes after you eat, you're like, I'm hungry again. If you're starting to have some vision issues that you're, you're, you're not as, uh, good, like even blurry vision, or your memory is not doing as well as it used to, or you're becoming forgetful all the time. Where did you put your keys? Where did you put your purse? Where did you put your bag? Where did you put the remote control? What about between meals? If you're one of those people that carries around candy in your purse or your bag, or you have it hidden throughout the house, because when you start getting shaky and you don't feel well, you go get it. That's high, That's low blood sugar. What if you become really hangry between meals? What if you get agitated and nervous all the time or get shaky and jittery and possibly even tremble like you have the shakes? Um, those are blood sugar issues. Low. What if you absolutely have to have coffee to get going? And these, these people, by the way, getting coffee in the morning, not such a blood sugar issue, but it's coffee in the afternoon. Or if you're not a coffee drinker, what are you drinking? You're drinking um, um, some sort of sugar drink or a Red Bull or something in the mid-afternoon. That's low blood sugar, by the way. Um, if you miss a meal, you become lightheaded, and then when you eat, you feel better. Those are all low blood sugar. But then there's the flip side of it. What if you have insulin resistance? Well, a lot of these people have migraines. They have aches and pains throughout their body. They can't lose weight no matter what they do. When they eat, they get tired. So they go to have lunch, and then in the mid-afternoon, they're, they're, they're tired. Um, and so these people, too, go to Starbucks in the afternoon. Now, I, I enjoy just the idea of going by Starbucks at certain times of the day, not to go in, but I look. 
Um, what's happening? Well, morning, busy. Uh, 10 o'clock, not so busy. But come noon to about 4, busy. <laughs> so we're looking at everybody stimulate their blood sugar imbalances as we go through there. Now, with insulin resistance, these people eat all the time. They're hungry. And when they eat sugar, it, it doesn't really do anything for them. And But they do like to have sweet after meals. They have a sweet tooth, we'll say. And generally speaking, they, they go to the bathroom a lot, pee. That's urination. You haven't increased your hunger. I can't seem to ever get full. And that your waist girth is the same or wider than your hips. Um, so we, so as men and women, we want to be considered hippie, which means you, not H-I-P-P-I-E, uh, not in the 70s, but you want to have a bigger hip than you do a waist. Um, that keeps that in check. So... Um, there, there is enough studies that show that you know women that have larger hips have less blood sugar issues, or and why there's, I mean, even going back in the time and looking at some older things, what what somebody in the you know 1200th century or the 1600th century saw as um, beauty was a larger woman than maybe today's standards, maybe a 14 or higher, but the difference was they had wider hips. Why? Well, now we know that that affects their blood sugar insulin, which means that they're going to have a better response in their hormones, which means they're going to be more fertile. It really doesn't have anything to do with the delivery of the child. It has everything to do with fertility. So for those of you who haven't heard me yet, if you become irritable, shaky, lightheaded, upset, nervous, hangry between meals, or you go too long without eating, this is your blood sugar dropping too low. You are depriving your brain of fuel. You are killing your brain. And when you eat and you feel better, this is not a good sign. I don't want you to have that. Uh, the only effect for eating, and this goes for insulin resistance and hypoglycemia, is you're hungry. And then you eat, and then you're not hungry. You don't have more energy. You don't have less energy. That means normal blood sugar. So, again, with blood sugar issues, some of these people have difficulty eating large meals, especially hypoglycemia. They don't want to eat breakfast at all. Uh, and they also feel nauseous in the morning. So one of the, the if you feel nauseated in the morning, your blood sugar is off. It's low. Um, your energy is going to drop in the afternoon, which sugar, salt, fat uh, is at every vending machine or coffee. And a lot of these people wake up between three and four in the afternoon, or sorry, three or four, three or four o'clock in the morning. It's it's a, it's a telltale sign. Uh, now, acupuncture wise, it could be liver, um, even large intestine, but most of these people are blood sugar issues that are off. And so what happens when you have low blood sugar? You have low blood pressure, and then you have low adrenal output. That's called adrenal fatigue, but it's really adrenal fatigue? No. It's a blood sugar that went there, and the adrenals try to do everything they possibly could to get it together. And every functional medicine alternative person has told you adrenal fatigue. There's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. It's a swope box of mind to get on top of. It means that that doctor doesn't understand physiology, period. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be blunt on that one. Don't understand physiology because adrenal fatigue is not in any, is, there's no research on it. There's adrenal exhaustion, and you can see it in the blood tests where the electrolytes start to come off and the cortisol goes up and then down. Uh, or you can be checking epinephrine or adrenaline, you can see those things start to come off. Uh, and so what happens with hypoglycemia is you get a condition where the adrenal glands no longer produce enough cortisol, so you're hypocortisolemia. And that cortisol helps you deal with stress, and it's also responsible for raising your blood sugar in the morning to get your butt out of bed. <laughs> so, uh, again, why do teenagers not get up in the morning? Because they eat like crap. Uh, does anybody, if you eat, if they ate 
properly, they're going to get up and get going. And, and that's why you see athletes, because they start to understand, I, I went and ate this stuff, not all of them, I went and ate this stuff, and I, I, I didn't feel good the next day. Or uh, when I went and lifted, or I went and ran, or I went and did whatever, I didn't do as well. They start to Most of the athletes that are good start to learn on, on their own. Now, I have had NFL players that come in, and they are junk food junkies, and they still eat McDonald's and KFC and everything else. And we have a talk and say, if you don't fix this, and I'm just going to tell you straight out, you know, you're making $3 million a year in your contract. What does another year playing in the NFL do for you and your family? And, and if they don't have a response to that, I don't really have anything I can do for them because they're going to get hurt and there's nothing I can do. They can't heal. And so um, it doesn't really matter what you make in the office. I don't care. Uh, I'm here to help you. But there are certain nutrients and dietary changes that are extremely supportive to people, especially those who are hypoglycemic. And we want nutrients that slow down the breakdown of cortisol so they can get that up as we come along. Um, and we, if you have low blood sugar, you're going to have low, again, cortisol response, which means that you're going to have low blood sugar or blood pressure, which means that even if you had no anemia, you're no longer perfusing your brain, which means you're causing hypoxia, low oxygen content to the brain. That sucks. So if we talk about going back in the past and it was stimulation to the brain and proper oxygen to the brain and proper fuel to the brain and you didn't get any of those because of one thing, low blood sugar. This is how low blood sugar can really affect you. Again, on the flip side, insulin resistance uh, does the complete opposite. It's too high. It's too much. So when people have a diet that's high in carbohydrates and sugars and sweets and sodas and pastries and pasta and rice and potatoes and corn, that's a big one, or any grain, anything that has a grain to it. So corn is a grain, but you can have wheat and soy and uh, sorghum uh, or rice or amaranth or hemp. Those are all grains and other starchy foods, the body does really quick at breaking these down and it raises your blood sugar. Then your, your pancreas has to secrete insulin to get it out of the bloodstream and into the cells. And if there's too much, what you do is you convert this into fat and you store it for a rainy day. This is America. So if you feel fatigued after meals, you crave sugar after you eat, or you need a stimulant such as coffee after you eat. That's why, um, you know, again, one of those things I, I just observed, how many people in their elderly state, we're talking 60 and 70, they get done eating the meal at night and they're like, I would like a cup of coffee. What? <laughs> uh, no, you don't need that at night. Um, that's, that's a stimulant, but you're trying to, they're, they're, that, that makes them feel better. It does. I'm not going to question that it doesn't make them feel better. So if you heard this little brief talk on blood sugar and why it's imperative to your health, it, it, it's imperative, if you've heard it before, when I've talked about thyroid issues, they're the same. You have to have proper blood sugar to help both of these. In fact, blood sugar imbalances is in every single of the 5,000 clinical diseases. And our particular diet and our particular world and what it does, it affects it. It affects your neurotransmitters. It affects your hormones. It affects your energy. It affects your recovery. It affects your immune system. These are all big things. Now, with in regards to hypoglycemia, you can start to get a decrease in serotonin. Uh-oh, that's your happy. You get a decrease in dopamine. And so when you get sugar, it drives the dopamine up, and then they start to fight. And there's different parts of the brain that that starts to affect. And eventually that's going to affect with um, with your brain. Now, when some people figure out, oh, I have low serotonin, so I'm going to supplement with uh, tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan. And if their blood sugar is off, because blood sugar requires it to get in there, 
they, they, they don't get it. So the issue isn't eating or taking or supplementing with enough serotonin. The problem is they don't have enough insulin or they don't have enough blood sugar to get the blood supply up there because they're hypoperfusing the brain. Uh, or they're just not getting it up there. So, you know, you could be tested or somebody provides a supplement for you, but if you don't get the basic underlying physiology affected, you, you can't supplement your way out of this. And so it has to really be dietary. Now, if somebody has hypoglycemia, some of the, the nutrients that we can use is chromium uh, or choline, um, liver support, uh, inositol, L-carnitine, because it drives fat into a cell, uh, CoQ10 to get the blood supply up, and Vandium. Uh, and now, not everybody who has hypoglycemia has just hypoglycemia. Sometimes they have a little bit of hyperglycemia or insulin resistance that goes along with it, and vice versa with insulin resistance. Now, insulin uh, resistant people, we, we really got to get them carbohydrate free. Um, and so, when when somebody goes, let's say, to a ketogenic state and they're eating keto based and they have no carbs, but they're still tired and dizzy after they or uh, after they eat there's that insulin resistance in that particular case is is very very advanced and they they may need some other type of help that some of the compounds that are used uh, in our office that really do help with insulin resistance is gymnina sylvester like sylvester the cat it, it helps to support insulin use and help with the pancreatic cell banana leaf extract um, mataki mushrooms um, guar gum, pectin, chromium, vandium. So chromium and vandium are in hypoglycemia, but it just helps to stabilize uh, that bitter melons. And one of the favorite ones we like in the office because of the use of it in Europe. Uh, they use this on type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance before medication. It's called alpha-lipoic acid. And so that was one of our, our favorite ones. But you can also use inositol, L-carnitine, just like you do in hypoglycemia, but you can also get into magnesium and biotin. These are all options, and we have... Uh, literally every single one of them in the office, but it, it's a matter of finding out which one works for you and to be able to test it and to make sure that you have your dietary control under um, and making sure that it's you're not sabotaging your progress. So I have to bring up, this will be my last topic on today's uh, podcast, will be the stress response to the brain. Now, in order to, to generate... Energy, when you are stressful, the body has to use its two adrenal glands, which sits on top of your kidneys because they store stress hormones, you know, whether it's adrenaline, but most of the time it's cortisol. So when somebody's in a high amount of stress, their cortisol goes very, very high, which means there's going to be more blood sugar that comes off. But long periods of stress, high stress, is detrimental to your brain, especially a part of the brain, which is your short-term memory called hippocampus, which is the seat. This is where you learn. This is your memory. This is the first to be affected in Alzheimer's and dementia. So we have people who are, you know, you know, attorneys. We have people who are uh, emergency room doctors. We have people who are emergency room nurses. We have people who are combat veterans, whether they got shot at or they were in, you know, combat surgery, these kind of things that, that go along. These are lifestyles. You know, maybe maybe you've been married five times and every divorce is awful. <laughs> Who knows? There are lifestyle things that people get into that the stress is enormous. And their life is always under this chronic stress. It's always pumping out uh, cortisol. And then they start to have sleep issues that come along with it. Um, and, and a lot of people really struggle with insomnia. 
and they have a hard time getting going in the morning. But studies have shown that 30% of people who experience insomnia, 30% of these people who experience it, 50, um, and that the 50 most prescribed drugs include several sleep-enhancing medications. This is, a, this is a red flag. This is telling you that your memory, short-term memory, is at risk because hippocampus is very susceptible to cortisol uh, being too high. So we have to go find out why, why aren't you sleeping? What kind of stress is you under? Is it physiological stress? Is it mental stress? Is it emotional stress? Is it life stress? What, where, where is that doing and what can we do to help that out? So one out of every eight people over 65 currently has Alzheimer's. And it's one out of two once you're out at 85. So baby boomers are at high risk. And if nobody's taking a look at these and, and dealing with, with these particular things, uh, that's, that's too bad. If you have a family member that's not getting taken care of or being evaluated for that, that's, that's too bad. Now, 90% of the information from the brain goes to the lower part of the brainstem. It's called the pontomedullary reticular formation, or PMRF. There, there's no quiz for that. And, and really, reticular in Latin just means a network. It's a network that's going through there. And this, the reason I bring this up, it's called the pontomedullary reticular system, and 90% of it goes through there. This is your, uh, it's called the parasympathetic. So pee, poop, sex, digestion, immunity, blood sugar, blood supply is what parasympathetic system does. But really what it's known as is your rest and digest. It oversees your digestion. It oversees how mucus gets secreted. It oversees bodily activities. It under, oversees enzyme production. Good brain output in this area means the proper stimulation, and you're not in a fight or flight. Unless your blood sugar is off, unless there's too much stress. And so when your stress is too high, it does start to change the nervous system. It regulates your breathing. It regulates your digestion. So a lot of people have indigestion, constipation, diarrhea. Their heart rate's too high. Uh, organ functions start to break down. They're in a fight or flight issue. And so they're not getting the autonomic nervous system that goes on there. And then when you start to get too much stress in the midbrain, you start to have the inability to turn off pain pathways. And so you get more and more inflammation. And these particular inflammatory, what's called messengers, are cytokines, like interleukin-6. They start to affect your response to emotional or chemical or physical stress. It's the same to the body. It has the same hormone response. It's the same inflammation. So when you're going through, um, you know, uh, a divorce or a loss of somebody, you, and you have this happening already because your blood sugar was never stabilized, you, you you experience them a lot worse than anybody else. That sucks. Well, what's happened to our society? How many people have a blood sugar handling problem? And so as they're going through life events, or I don't know, a lockdown, or being told that they can't work because they're unvaccinated, or being told that they need to go home because they're fat, they are sick, or whatever it is going on in you know the world today, they start to get this. And by the way, post-traumatic stress syndrome, also, the bin part of the brain gets loaded with interleukin-6 inflammation that goes into there. So what do we have to do with these people? We have to fix their freaking blood sugar to help them out. So we have to recognize when somebody has brain inflammation. Is it inflammation to the brain or is it degeneration to the brain or is it both? So if somebody drives the office and they're tired when they get in or they're dizzy or they're exhausted, they're, um, that's, a, that's a, a highlight. But let's say you have two grandparents that do the same thing. And as they get there, one of them needs to go take a nap, and the other one's just fine. Guess who has it? Brain inflammation. Someone has to take a nap. Um, but but you could have a couple in their 30s, a couple in their 40s. Uh, by the way, adrenal exhaustion, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia starts in your 20s and 30s. So I'm pleased when a 20 or 30 year old walks in the office, uh, and I know that it's can be sometimes a financial burden to get there. But it's extremely important that they start doing the processes now to stop the interleukin-6, to stop the blood sugar being off, to stop the, hy the hypoperfusion, 
uh, to get in front of these things. And if there is an event that's happened, let's say they got a concussion in their 18, 19 year old uh, body or, you know, playing sports, this has to be dealt with. If, the, if there's somebody's going through a terrible emotional or physical stress, whether it's the loss of a, a loved one or uh, emotional, we have to get in front of this and set this up. And whether it's lifestyle and diet and nutrition and making sure that how they're eating and how they're functioning is, is vitally important. And, and even in that set, um, we, we do need to do neuro testing. We need to, to make sure that those things are there and that requires some blood tests that come along too to make sure that none of those things are out of kilter. Because, okay, the passing of a loved one, the loss of a, a spouse um, through a divorce, it, it, it's stressful, there's no question. But have you come out of it? And have you come out of it better than you were before physiologically? Because the effect of that has a bigger issue with you getting Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, which means that your whole family is now going to be stressed with more mental and emotional issues, not to mention the financial responsibility of dealing with a condition that nobody told you how to help mitigate. I know you have a lot of podcasts that you can listen to. I appreciate you listening to ours. Um, if you'd like to know more about our office, uh, go to choosenewleaf.com. I'm Dr. Alan Trites. Great health does not have to be a mission impossible. Be well. This podcast, Great Health Does Not Have to Be a Mission Impossible, provides you information about evidence-based strategies for Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, digestion, autoimmune disease, brain health issues, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode, nutrition, Dr. Trite's blog, and many other topics at choosenewleaf.com. There you'll have all the information, and thank you for listening to this podcast. The best thing to do is sign up for his newsletter, where he'll update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. You can find Dr. Trite's social media on Instagram and Facebook with the username New Leaf Health. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. Note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.